If it doesn't work on the back of an envelope, using Excel to go get into the weeds too much is just going to create too much margin for error. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Andrea Himmel. Andrea is joining us from New York City. She is the principal and chief investment officer at Himmel and Marengoff Properties, which was founded in 1978. It owns a multi-billion dollar portfolio of office buildings in Manhattan and last mile warehouses in the boroughs of New York. Andrea has 14 years of real estate experience. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here with you. Well, the pleasure is ours. Andrea, before we get started, can you tell the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So I studied real estate undergrad at Wharton and knew I wanted to work in it because my mother was actually in the industry. She had co-founded the firm I currently work at in 1978 and was really a pioneer in becoming a first-generation owner of a significant portfolio, coming from really not much. So I was very inspired by my mother. So during college, I had multiple internships, one at Lubert Adler, where I was working on real estate from a private equity angle, a lot of opco, propco kind of retail investing I worked in CMBS at Morgan Stanley and ultimately landed at Brookfield in 2008. I was a little underutilized, so I started interviewing around about two years later because it had been a slow market. As you recall, that was the recession. So I interviewed and my mom said, you know what, get out of real estate, get into a more sophisticated form of investing. So you can differentiate yourself because a lot of real estate owners are street smart, but not really financially sophisticated. So I took a job for a hedge fund and spent eight years there. I ended up managing their oil and gas portfolio that was about 10% of their 60 billion of assets under management is a long-term value fund. And I learned how to value cash flow. And basically, businesses should be like lemonade stands money in, money out, some form of capitalizing the business, and some way to distribute the proceeds. So, the skills I gained there, focusing on valuation, were 100% applicable to those that I use now today in real estate and valuation work. Well, you make all of that sound easy. <laughs> I ended right. up. Starting a private equity fund, we hit a home run and raised $300 million from Elliott Management, which is Paul Singer's fund, and had a 96% return on our first fund and a 3x multiple. Then at the time, since I was a startup, I was working out of one of my mom's buildings. She had always told me, you can never work for me, but I had earned her respect over the years. So she invited me to work for the company. Amazing. A lot to cover here. Your mom started this business in 1978. Was it investing in real estate in New York City? It was. A lot of it, however, because she didn't have cash to buy much. She was acquiring ground leases in the boroughs and in emerging neighborhoods, such as 4th Avenue, which is now Park Avenue South, or 
Harlem in 1979, they did a lot of ground leases because there's no major initial upfront capital payment. So, and then it got purchase options and ultimately now own the fee. She got started doing that. She actually met her business partner at a lecture that Larry Silverstein was giving at NYU and his guest was Harry Helmsley. And Harry said, does the audience have any questions? My mom's hand went up. She said, what's your greatest accomplishment? And Harry Helmsley said, what are you doing tonight? And of course, that's unacceptable today, I think. But it grabbed the, the attention of Stephen Marengoff, who later approached my mother and said, we should team up and, and be owners together. So they borrowed recourse, which obviously we don't do anymore, but they borrowed recourse up to 90% because financing back then was totally different pre-RTC days and built a portfolio over a few decades. And Harry Hemsley, the owner of the Empire State Building, infamous wife, Leona Hemsley. Yeah, we were all family friends and he became a mentor to my mom. My mom actually very confidently broke her way into real estate by sneaking into Rebney Galas, which is Real Estate Board of New York. And she had gone to HBS. So she said to many prolific developers that HBS is Harvard Business School. Yes, it is. Got it. Yep. She said, you know what? I'm putting together a real estate panel for Harvard Business School. Larry Silverstein, do you think you qualify for this? Harry Helmsley, do you qualify? Seymour Durst, do you qualify for my panel? And instead, what that did was it turned them into her mentors over the years and ultimately peers. And she became a well-respected name following in the footsteps of giants. Incredible. And your mom was a pioneer because in 1978, and even through most of the 80s, New York was not what it is today. It was a rough place. But as Harry Holmesley told her, Grand Central is not going to get on rollerblades and go anywhere. So there's still certain districts, certain neighborhoods, and we still feel the same today that are emerging, even though they may be Grand Central or Penn Station. But we think location, 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 as well as leasability and all sorts of things. Andrea, I don't want to make this podcast about your mom, but one last question You mentioned she did ground leases and then got financing. How does that work? So she did a lot of ground leases. With no money? Well, you pay, back then it may have been a few hundred thousand or a hundred thousand a year in your ground rents. There may be upfront key money, but usually there wasn't. Oh, so she was a lessor. Yes, she was. Not not the the owner. Not the owner of the fee. So she would run the property, operate it, bear all the capbacks, all that. And through refinancings and stabilizations of properties, she was able to amass a portfolio. All right. So then you had a career in private equity. You were underutilized. Tell me about that. I just, out of college, was so overly zealous to have my brain picked and my energy leveraged. And you wanted to rule the world, right? I wanted to grow and I wanted to make my world larger and my brain larger. And I just felt like I was at Brookfield, which at the time, right now, they're an incredibly dynamic, prolific company that's very nimble. Back then, it was a bigger public company. 
and I think I needed a more nimble environment. So I preferred to find somewhere where I would really be challenged intellectually. Yeah, a lot of us have first jobs where we're underutilized. Good for you for making the move. You then went to a hedge fund in the oil and gas space. Was it a real estate play or was it pure oil and gas business? So that at the time started with three and a half billion dollars of cash and to manage and ultimately is now 60 billion. And we were investing in equities. So publicly traded companies such as Schlumberger or Hess or Exxon. At the time, it was less environmentally conscious. So we didn't have a philosophical lean in any direction, but we sought undervalued companies for long-term holds and based on true distress in the market or anxiety among investors. And I did that in the equity side. And then when oil prices in 2016 collapsed to $26 a barrel from 125, I saw an arbitrage in the private market to buy assets that were priced as if oil were $26, whereas equities were trading as though oil were at $70. So I moved to the private side, raised a fund, was rejected by 2,000 investors. It took 2,001 meetings to actually get a commitment. And our first fund, we tripled our second fund, is still being deployed. And it's a fascinating industry. It's also a real asset as far as it can be 1031. I think of it as real estate below grade. So it was applicable. And right now you focus on warehouses and office buildings. Correct. So we've been in the industrial space since 1986. We've been in the office space even longer than that. And we feel that there's a tremendous amount of capital froth in the industrial space right now. So we're focusing our efforts on growing our office portfolio. We like to zig one another zag. We're contrarian investors and we can do that because we can arbitrage time because we have a balance sheet. So if we can be long-term holders and buy something that's in distress, we're a fortunate buyer, not to mention we're very nimble in structuring. So if the seller needs some sort of tax efficient structure or some legal structure that is an institutional buyer wouldn't be able to accommodate, we're able to do those sort of things. So for example, there's a warehouse in the Bronx that we loved We bid on it. The owner's problem was he couldn't monetize the real estate without monetizing his plastic business first. So we made a bid with a private equity fund to buy both the business and the real estate and do an opco-propco separation of the two so that we could ultimately get to the real estate. And then you ended up selling the plastics company? That did not execute that deal. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. 
They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. You can get 15% off right now with the code BEC15 at besteverconference.com. That's the code BEC15 for 15% off at besteverconference.com. So you have the money of a hedge fund, but you have the nimbleness of a small company. Amazing. We do always partner on deals with equity partners. So while we've done a few deals on our own, so for example, we paid $25 million for a 120,000 square foot building in Long Island City, the Noodle Factory in 2017. We focus on really anything within office and industrial, and I can get into like how we approach that. Let's do it. So industrial space, because I was trained in research at the hedge fund I worked at, we said in the industrial space, we wanted a macro supply demand thesis. So we don't even know what supply is in industrial. In New York City in 2003, when Mayor Bloomberg was in charge, 200 square blocks were rezoned from industrial to residential. So a lot of factories converted to loft or SE, whatever. So supply we know was on the decline. Demand was rising because the reasons that the pandemic has accelerated, people want delivered items and they want them delivered to them more quickly. So warehouses need to be located more central to the urban core or to their end customer. And that's called last mile delivery. So we saw demand rising. We saw supply falling and then set out to to decide what are our parameters. So any site that's between two and 20 acres, let's call that M zoned, we want to know about. So it turned out there were 1500 of them. 500 of them were owned by government agencies from whom we would not be able to buy. 500 were owned by real estate investors who were too sophisticated for us to buy from. The the final third or 500 sites that remain are owner-occupied. So take the plastic frisbee guy or a packaging company, someone who actually uses their space, recognizes at some point that the real estate is worth more than the business and decides whether they want to monetize on on the real estate. So we wanted to focus on that stock of folks because they seem to be the least able to add value from a real estate perspective and the most willing to transact. So we entrenched ourselves in the world of owner-occupied stock and whether that's knowing the tool company really well and spending time with the principals 
who own the building and understanding the tax issues they may face having owned it for 40 years under a trust with six kids, or we can get down into the gritty details and be pretty nimble with them. So that's our industrial approach. Do these principles continue to operate at that location? Yeah, they operate really because their business cash flow is dependent upon their labor and their labor would quit if they announced that they were looking to sell the real estate or shut down the company. So they would immediately lose cash. That we've seen with a bunch of the owners is they fear that they'd lose their labor. And these are 3% of all warehouses in the U.S. are actually at all roboticized. So everything is a lot of labor. So I don't understand how that works. You buy the building or do you get an option on it? You can structure it however you want, but it's up to the seller. What does the seller want to do? Do they want a lease back for two years while they figure out where their company can go and relocate? And then you own it free and clear, in which case you're buying the fee. We're not interested in the simple sale lease back because that's kind of like a core return. And we're really focused on doubling our money on a deal at least. So we work with the owner and solve for whatever their problems are. So if they want something that's tax efficient because of low basis, we can say if it's a $100 million deal, we'll give you $50 million as an option payment to buy it in 10 years at $100 million. And the $50 million option payment is non-taxable. So we do structures like that. Got it. Okay. So they can continue to operate their business for years to come, but you have the option to buy the building. Or we buy the building and they lease it back at some below market rent for two years while they try to find their new location or shrink or sell or do whatever they're going to do to their business. And then we have an empty property that we have to lease. Got it. And then with office buildings, what are you seeing today in New York? Distress on a vacancy level, but wow, is leasing activity up. So the vacancy is about 6% higher than normal. It's about 18% and average is about 12. So we still have a fair amount of available space and a large amount of that is subleased space. But anecdotally, just from within our firm, we just signed a 100,000 square foot lease with an NYPD at 525 West 57th Street, a 70,000 square foot lease with NYU downtown at 411 Lafayette in addition to maybe 13 to 15 leases in Chelsea, Nomad, Flatiron area. So that compares to zero activity last year at this time. So we're seeing the market really pick up. What is MIPD? NYPD. Oh, NYPD, New York Police Department. Got it. Are you buying these at distressed prices? We only are willing to buy at distressed prices. We don't value assets based on IRR or some return metric like that. We always measure a return on invested capital as a multiple. We're really basis buyers who try to make money on the buy. You mentioned when you were with the hedge fund in the oil and gas industry, you learned a lot about cash flow. And I was going to ask the question, do you buy value add properties if you're so focused on cash flow? We're not focused on cash flow. So as an investor, I like to invest in companies that are profitable. Got you it. Know, that's why I don't know how to value venture capital from that angle. I don't know how to value a company that has negative profits. I just don't. But from our perspective, ordinary income, the current yield, we don't care about. We can actually forego that if there's a path to a reasonable yield. And if that means that it's an unleased property, whether it's office or industrial, 
we have the confidence that being a vertically integrated company, we can lease it up. We're willing to take that risk because that's a business we're in. And we have 40 years of experience doing the management too. Andrea, when did the company go all in on office? It's a great question. I know that we had a property on 125th and I think Lex or Park, and it's made a major now fully developed site. But we were there in the 70s. We've been in all the neighborhoods. We were in Queens as industrial in 1986, and then office at least around 1986 or 1984. So in 2020, you suffered a bit of a hit. Yeah, we saw our buildings, just like the market, really hit 10% occupancy level. We had a lot of blend and extends or lease conversations, but our arrearages have caught up. We've actually extended tenants to our accretion, to our benefit. And we have a building that is highly leased to entertainment industry and nonprofit for entertainment industry tenants because it's in Times Square. That building, I'd say, might have had more tenant requests to get rent abatements and such. But we worked with our tenants. We were very generous and we continue to try to be. And blend and extend is when you re-up somebody's lease for maybe a discount in rent for a period exactly. of time. And you just get more term. And it's great if you want to borrow against the asset because having term allows you to borrow to a greater percentage of the capital stack. And we're conservative when it comes to debt, but it's hard, for example, to finance month-to-month leases and on one extreme, and it's easy to finance a 50-year, 30-year lease on the other. Andrea, was your office vacancy caused by defaults or was it caused by tenants just not renewing their lease? There are a few categories. Upon renewal, a few tenants just did not renew. But honestly, we've seen lease spaces. Then there are tenants who tried to get out of their lease and we said no, and we have big security deposit, so they're kind of stuck in that position. Then there are tenants who agreed to have a conversation and negotiate some form of amendment to the lease where we can both help be mutually beneficial. And with your research background, what research went into your decision to double down on office? Great question. So I think of our firm and what we're looking at, it is above normal levels of vacancy. We're in a cycle where we're somewhere near a low, although there really has yet to be seen some distress. But we're looking out to office, we could say, if we were really negative, wow, I have a building that's 30% vacant or 10% vacant, and it has 30% rollover and five years of leasing risk, because who knows when people come back to work, and I have to carry the building, it's taxes, it's insurance, and everything else, the mortgage for five more years, screw it, I'm just going to Florida. And that's what we're seeing. So I made a database, going back to database making, of private owners who are similar in size to us, similar or smaller, like between 10 and 20 properties. So it it started as a list of 2,000 properties and 65 owners that we focused on and then narrowed it down to a list of 15 owners, each with on average 10 properties or 150 properties. We are focused on certain neighborhoods 
and we are focused on certain asset types. We think there's a great reuse potential in the garment district, which is totally distressed from the life science perspective. And we think that certain neighborhoods that are unsexy will emerge again. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. How are you doing on your goals this year, whether it's planning for your goals or whether it's executing on those goals? I imagine one of them has to do with financial freedom, taking control of your finances. And I can tell you that is a possibility within the next one to three years using a proven system created by my friend, Michael Blanc. He's got the program Deal Maker Mentoring. Here are some of his students who have been in the program and what they've accomplished. Melanie McDaniel, she closed her first 24-unit joint venture deal and is now pivoting to become full-time in the industry. Within five months of joining, Cheryl Groovy from Atlanta, she had a 34-unit deal under contract, and she partnered with two other deal-maker mentoring students, and together they raised $700,000. And Brian Briscoe, he said thanks to deal-maker mentoring, he had the opportunity to accelerate his timeline and go after much bigger deals than he would have on his own. If you are ready to commit to achieving your dreams this year and you've been thinking about getting into multifamily, well, text the word Joe to 66866. Again, that's the word Joe. You know how to spell my name, right? J-O-E to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors, and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And Follow-Up Boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The Follow-Up Boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-Up Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Where do you get your data from? I use a few subscription apps or softwares. Like I use Reonomy, Property Shark, and CoStar. I also look at public tax records. Acris in New York is what we use. I sometimes follow court litigation to see if there's a partnership in trouble. And I track weekly transactions of properties to say, oh, hey, actually, so-and-so who we thought was never a seller is starting to sell assets. So maybe that's good data point. So I track a lot of indicators. Obviously, the interest rates, the inversion of the 30-year coming below the 20-year a week ago or two weeks ago was a big trigger for me. 
and then obviously all these data points we have on inflation. So it changes the cap rates we'll use to underwrite and discount rates to value. So with uh, projected inflation on the horizon, you're not using the norm for cap rates. You're actually using a higher cap rate. Yeah, we're conservative, but not conservative to the point that we'll price ourselves out of the deal. So, for example, if something were today to trade on a four cap or let's say a five cap, I'm talking 6% then or five and a half percent, nothing like on an exit, nothing crazy. If there's an assumption that there should be cap rate compression, for example, the stabilization of the building offset by the growth in it. Andrew, you mentioned, you know, the garment district is going to come back. Why? It's M zoned, meaning it's manufacturing zoned. The buildings, not all of them, but some of them are built structurally so robustly with floor load to HVAC systems to ceiling heights that they can accommodate life sciences clusters. New York City was the number one in the country last year for venture capital funding of life science startups. And what is life science? Life science is anything from biotech to anything working with living organisms, basically. So it's research, it's R&D. We have a building, 525 West 57th Street. It's a life science-oriented building. It has the premier MS researcher, Dr. Sadiq, and he has a vivarium, which is where living organisms are studied and requires certain very technical features on the lab level. We also have Genzyme, LabCorp, and then I forget who it became later on. But we had a 200,000 square foot vacancy in that property because CBS left after decades of paying very low rent. And we leased half of that already to the NYPZ, as I mentioned. And then we have another 100,000 to lease, but we think we're close on leasing that too. Do you just use leasing brokers? Well, we have an internal leasing team because we were vertically integrated with a management company that's dedicated just to our buildings. But we always work with outside brokers. Someone brings us a tenant. We aspire to integrity in the brokerage community because I think brokers are the lifeblood of the industry and are really undervalued and underappreciated. So we make sure that if someone brings us a deal or a contact, that we reciprocate in kind. What does your leasing team do that's creative to try to get these tenants in? It's a great question. We're amenitizing buildings, but our buildings aren't that large. They're not million square foot buildings. They're small. They're 200,000 square feet. So we don't have a great deal of space to dedicate as an amenity for the rooftop isn't that large or it has mechanical equipment. So for us, it's more about we foresaw a strong location, good building, meaning it has good ceiling heights, good light, good air and good infrastructure. And we've been proactively investing in its maintenance and capital over the years. Andrea, I read an article this morning that said companies that offer a four-day work week will have a huge competitive advantage in the future. So all of this pressure to work from home, work less, what is that going to do to office space? It's called $6 billion question with inflation, but we don't know yet. We can't quantify, and I'd be arrogant to say I could the impact that work from home will have long-term on office demand. It will no doubt take away from office demand. 
However, there are countervailing forces that may cause some net positive effect, such as the de-densification of office places. People want corners, they want window, they want light, they want to be in their own offices. They don't necessarily want to be sharing spaces or hoteling like some companies are doing or hot desking. We're seeing a lot of it leasing in our portfolio because our buildings are such that the windows are operable, which is rare. They often can walk to their floor because these aren't 80-foot towers. They're 12 to 15-story buildings. So maybe not in the 15th story are they walking, but for the most part, tenants like these factors. And also the floor plates are about 15,000 square feet in general for us. So that allows for one to two tenants per floor, which is good from the perspective of the tenant thinking, I don't know, the COVID policies of my neighbor. Yeah. So my opinion is the work from home will not last because of the lack of collaboration. At some point, lack of productivity. I'm much more productive at my office. We're closed down right now because we had a COVID case, but it was resolved and everyone else at the company is negative. But it's amazing to me that all week I've been out and about at conferences and meetings and you have to see people. This is a tangible business. We would never buy a building that we didn't kick the tires on. Yeah. So you're like me. You think at some point people are returning to the office and the work from home is going to be short-lived. Certain industries, it'll be more work from home. I could foresee law, for example, doing that. Although I think it's really hard for them to find talent and promote and create upward mobility. Software, maybe they work from home. But the people that we see remaining working from the office actually require more square feet per person than when we included the ones that are now departing from the office. So no more cubicle farms. Correct. Yeah. Andrea, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Be overprepared. And if it doesn't work on the back of an envelope, using Excel to go get into the weeds too much is just going to create too much margin for error. Andrea, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. Let's do it. What's the hardest lesson you've learned? That's a great question. Hardest lesson is because I worked for my mother and her business partner, In the beginning years, I didn't push back often. And we had so many properties off market that today are worth multiples of what they were. And I knew from analysis, paralysis, as well as good analysis and gut, that these were deals we should have pursued. I should have pushed harder against their opinion. I'm at the point now where they take it more seriously when I have recommendations and they often manifest strategies. But at the time, I wish I had the the confidence to push back more. Andrew, what's the best ever book you recently read? A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. It's similar to A Power of Now. What was your big takeaway from that book? Be present. Andrew, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I serve on the board of directors of Habitat for Humanity, as well as the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. I mentor a lot of students. I'm a big sister to a little sister for 18 years now. And I also support 10 women in Uganda and Sierra Leone through Child Fund, which is a nonprofit, and plan on starting a village savings and loans association. So I really think philanthropy, giving is receiving. And Andrea, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? You can email me. My email is a himmel, H-I-M-M-E-L at hm 
like Himmel Maringoff, hmprop.com. Was it prop, P-R-O-P? Yes. Awesome. Andrea, thank you so much for sharing your story with your mom being a pioneer in the 70s to you going a couple different routes and coming back to real estate and just dominating New York City real estate. It was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. It was my honor. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us and have the best ever day.